0: Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. Throughout Mark's Gospel, we've seen the authority of Jesus over all things. We've seen His authority over sickness. We've seen His authority over demons, over death over the sea, over the wind, and we've seen authority in His teaching. The religious leaders uh, didn't really understand who Jesus was. It seems to me from the first half of the Gospel, other than Jesus Christ, the only being that knew who He was was the demon and the, the several demons, the legion of demons. They would often refer to Jesus by name, He said that we know you are the Son of God, and so on. The, the Pharisees didn't know. The religious leaders didn't know. The, the disciples didn't fully understand what was going on. But in the second half of the book, which I believe begins now, we have the disciples starting to understand. They start to, to see who it is that Jesus is. And even though their understanding is a bit lacking, they they comprehend more than when they first began following Him. For the first uh, two years or so of Christ's ministry, He had been stressing the the kingdom of God. And He spoke about many parables in this light and the the need to prepare for this kingdom. But then towards the, the end of His ministry, the emphasis changes... To, to His death and training His followers, teaching them about what would happen and, and what they should do after He was gone. And this event uh, that we've been looking at, the event where Jesus uh, was out on the boat with these disciples and they don't have enough food for everyone, this, this really marks the transition in the book of Mark. And now He begins throughout the rest of the book to explain, to unfold what it is that is about to happen. Because up until this point, they don't know that Jesus is going to die. The Messiah that they were expecting was going to be this political leader. This person who set up His throne and and stopped the oppression of the Jews and put down the Romans. But but here Jesus reveals what it means to be a Messiah. Messiah that part of being Messiah includes being a suffering servant. And although that was foreign to them, they, they really had no indication up to this point. Now, Jesus had given some clues that He would be gone at some point. In chapter 2, we read about uh, Jesus talking to His disciples and saying that at some time, the bridegroom is going to be taken away and there they had a clue but but certainly they didn't understand what was going on in Matthew chapter 12 we find out that Jesus says that, that there is a uh, you have all that you need to know about me from the old testament in John chapter 3 he talks about a serpent being lifted up and all who look at it will be saved and we we come at that chapter John chapter 3 to one of the most famous verses in all the bible John 3:16 That for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son and that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. That whoever looks at Jesus, whoever believes in Him by looking will have eternal life. Well, it was here at Caesarea Philippi where we're going to study that Jesus first began openly and plainly teaching them about His death. And this was approximately one year before His crucifixion. And this announcement came after the Jews had already rejected his offer of the kingdom. So now he's turning his attention to his death and to training his disciples. And in this passage, what, the passage that we're going to look at today, we see that the disciples affirm that he is God, that he is the Son of God who was promised in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Christ. But they didn't fully understand what that meant. And so Jesus begins to unfold what it does mean. And He, he, he tells them that, that He must suffer and die and that after He dies, He will be raised from the dead three days later. Now, with all this teaching, they are still slow to understand. And so we need to look at this passage and try to see what, what Mark is trying to tell to us and then how we can apply it to our lives. So let's begin reading with verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, "John the Baptist," and others say, "Elijah," but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, "You are the Christ." And he warned them, and he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Today we're going to see that Jesus is the source of spiritual sight and spiritual clarity. And we'll begin by seeing how Jesus gives sight to this blind man in verses 22-24. through 24. In verse 22, we see that they come to a place called Bethsaida. In chapter 8, uh, in verse 10, we see that this place is called Dalmanutha or that they were in Dalmanutha, and then they cross over. Remember, they go into the boat, and the disciple says, oh no, we only have one loaf of bread. How are we going to have enough food to feed everybody? And Jesus says, do you still not understand who I am? Do you not understand that I fed all these people, and I'm in your midst now? And so they're in the boat while this all takes place, what we looked at last week. And now we come to... Bethsaida. They come to Bethsaida on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On the north, it's on the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and then it's uh, to the east of the Jordan River, just there at the mouth of the river. And Jesus takes this man that is brought to Him in verse 23, and He takes him aside to deal with him. In verse 22, we see in the second part, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. So these people, probably his friends or someone, some close relatives that were concerned about him, brought this blind man to Jesus and said, can you take care of him? Can you at least just touch him? Because we've heard that if you touch someone, you can even give them uh, healing. And So they brought, brought this man to him. And in verse 23, we see that he takes the man by the hand. He takes him by the hand and takes him away from the crowded area. Now, Jesus could have very well just healed this man just by touching him or He could have healed this man just by saying a word or or simply thinking it. But He decided to pull this man aside and I believe He does this in order to teach the disciples a lesson. We'll talk about what that lesson is as we go through. But, but perhaps he, he brings him aside away from the crowd simply to to remove this man from the hostility and unbelief of the crowd that was there. And you remember now that Jesus has is trans, transitioning now to a different part of His ministry. And so what you'll find is that in the first part of His ministry, lots of miracles, lots of ways in which He's proving His authority, both to the crowds and his, to His disciples personally. But in the end of the book, you're not going to find a lot of miracles. This is one of the very few. And so Jesus takes him aside because remember, what, what's going to happen is if, if Jesus allows them to see these miracles, what they'll want to do is take Him and make Him king by force, John 6 tells us. And Jesus was not going to allow that because His mission did not include Him becoming king on a throne in Jerusalem. His mission included dying for you and for me. And he recognized that that was part of his mission and so he did not want to be uh, put in a place where he was forced to be king. And in verse 24, we see that Jesus gives this man partial restoration of sight. He partially restores the sight. Look at verse 24. And he looked up and said, well, let's look at the end of verse 23 he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. So this man, who had been blind for a period of time, perhaps all of his life, we're not sure exactly, but when his eyes are open, when he's given sight, he's not given full sight, is he? Because verse 24 tells us that when he sees... All he sees is blurry images like, like trees. People are like trees walking around. Now, the fact that he knows what trees look like indicates that he probably did see at one time. However, if he were blind from birth, he still could have understood what trees looked like based on feeling them throughout his life. We don't know exactly, but, but the point is, is that he now has partial sight. He sees something. But Jesus doesn't give him full sight right away. He gives him partial. And then He does the second act upon this man in verses 25 and 26 to give full clarity to this man. Verse 25, Then again He laid His hands on His eyes and He looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And He sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Now the fact that Mark records that his sight was restored also gives us an indication that this man once saw because he, he his, his sight was restored to what it once was, perhaps. But now Jesus gives him full sight. And in, in verse 26, he says, do not enter the village. He wanted to avoid this crisis that we've talked about, this crisis of people trying to either kill him prematurely before He had time to talk to His disciples or make Him king by force. And Jesus' plan throughout His earthly ministry was to do God's will, God's desire. And part of His purpose was to teach His disciples what was happening and what their responsibility was. And so the main reason that you find Jesus removing Himself from the crowds was so that He could have time with His disciples. So that He could have a close interaction with them in order to, to teach them what was about to happen. And so we have this, this picture, this story that's given. And then Mark immediately moves into this story about the disciples where Jesus asks them who do they think He is. And so in verses 27 through 30 we see that the work of Christ gives spiritual sight. Verses 27 through 30 they're they're starting to see. Okay, they're starting to see just like this blind man when he opened his eyes, he saw blurred images, like like men were like trees walking around and the same thing is true for the disciples. They're starting to see because they make this claim, Peter being their spokesperson, they make this claim that yes Jesus you are the Christ. Okay, so so we could ask ourselves or we could ask the text, why is it that, that this healing is there? This healing of the blind man is there. Why was this done in stages? Notice the story that, that comes immediately before the healing of the blind man and, and immediately after. Both stories have to do with the disciples' failure to see Jesus clearly, don't they? Remember what we talked about last week? They're in the boat. And, and Jesus said to them, Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not perceive? Do you have a hardened heart? Is it not clear to you? You see, it's like the blind man. Do you not fully see? Is everything not clear to you? You say you know who I am. You were there when those miracles happened, when I fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 but do you not yet understand? And so immediately before the healing of the blind man, we have that. And then immediately after, we have Jesus saying to them, who do you think that I am? And they say, well, we think you're Jesus Christ. And and following that, we have a story which we read about where, where Peter rebukes Jesus so clearly he doesn't see completely, does he? He doesn't have clear sight. He has a partial image of who Jesus is now this miracle that we just read about was the healing of the blind man is only recorded in the gospel of mark which suggests that that mark has a purpose for it i think it's in keeping with his theme of the book and that is that christ has the authority over all things and that he demands faith even to the point of persecution that Christ demands faith even to the point of persecution and the disciples didn't even recognize that Jesus would be persecuted. They didn't recognize that yet. And so Jesus is helping them to see, we could say, in stages, like the blind man. He's saying, here, let me give you a little bit so you can understand this. Okay, understand that I'm going to die. He's going to tell them that. And then after they understand that Jesus is going to die, they have to understand that they, if they follow Him, will also die, will also be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. And we know from history that almost all of the disciples did die for their faith. I believe James was the only one uh, that did not. Um, So the work of Christ gives spiritual sight. Now when Jesus records for us here In verses 27 through 30, that he will, uh, in verse 31, excuse me, that he will die and that he will rise again. This is the first of three times in which he explains that he will do so. He does this to the disciples three times because when he tells it to them here the first time, they don't understand. Remember what Peter said? No, Lord, this is not going to happen. He rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So so Jesus has to tell them two more times at least that He was going to die and rise again. Those, Those take place in chapter 9, verse 30, and then chapter 10, verse 33 and following. Now, why is it that Jesus asked this question in verse 27? Let's read it again. Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? Why not just tell them who He was? Why not just say, I am the Messiah promised from the Old Testament and I'm going to suffer. Why not just do that? I believe what Jesus is doing here is He's preparing the disciples for, for them teaching other people. Sometimes the best way to get somebody to see something for themselves is to ask questions. Is it not? When we make statements, we, we don't often affirm them as true when we're listening. But if a person asks a question, then you have to usually make an affirmation. You have to say, yes, that's true, or no, it's not. Okay. We could say something like, it was hot yesterday, and you could very well be in agreement with me. But then I could ask a question like this, wasn't it hot yesterday? And inside, you're, you naturally respond, yes, it was hot yesterday. Or I could ask an open-ended question, like, what was the temperature like yesterday? And what that does is it forces your mind to go back in time. Okay, what was it like yesterday? Where was I? What was I doing and Jesus does the same sort of thing. He often teaches by asking questions. And he wants to see what exactly the disciples are thinking. Not that he can't read their minds, but he's helping them to voice what it is that they are thinking. And so they respond. They respond, uh, Peter responds, or actually they respond for the crowds that were there in verse 28. And they, the disciples, told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And He, Jesus, continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to Him, You are the Christ. Now, the disciples give to Jesus the same answers that the people during uh, the time of John the Baptist's imprisonment, the same answers that they gave. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 14. Do you remember when Herod heard about this Jesus? And he was trying to figure out who it was. And this is what Mark records for us in chapter 6, verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, that is the the message of Jesus, what Jesus had been doing, for His name, Jesus' name, had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in Him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. So when Herod finds out that Jesus is is making a name for Himself and that His name is spreading throughout the region, Mark records for us what people were saying about this Jesus. Some were saying it was John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That's what Herod believed. Some were saying that it was Elijah because of the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. But others were saying that it was a prophet of old. And so the disciples in chapter 8, verse 28, they reflect what the people were saying in keeping with what Mark recorded earlier. But then the disciples respond for themselves in verse 29. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. On behalf of the twelve, Peter affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. That is what Christ means. Now, we always think of Jesus, His first name, and Christ, His last name. But really, Christ should be preceded by the, because Christ means Messiah. So it is Jesus, the Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah. However, the Scripture writers just take the the out, so there's no problem in saying Jesus Christ. But when we say Christ, we should understand the Messiah. And that's why Peter says, you are the Christ. He doesn't say you are Mr. Christ. He says you are the Christ, the Messiah. Now, were the disciples correct in saying that Jesus is the Christ? Certainly they were. Jesus is the promised Messiah. However, their view of the Messiah was incomplete. They thought that Jesus was going to be like the Messiah that they were thinking about, like the Jews had taught about. The One who would come and rule on a throne on this earth. And they thought, He's here. It's time. All this Roman oppression that we're receiving is going to be over with. Because they thought of the Christ, the Messiah, as a political ruler. However, what you'll find when Jesus talks about Himself is that He very rarely calls Himself the Christ. In fact, Mark only records the word Christ nine times in his Gospel. And only three times Jesus actually says that word, Christ. And of those three times, He's only referring to Himself once. One of the times He says, in that day, talking about the end times, there will be a, someone who calls Himself the Christ. So even in that case, he's not talking about himself. Only one time he refers to himself as the Christ. Instead, he calls himself primarily the Son of Man. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this is the name that he often referred to himself as. So Peter's confession of Christ, uh, of who Jesus was in verse 29, is God-given. But it's not complete, is it? It is like that blind man who sees, but only partially. He doesn't quite see clearly. But Jesus is about to explain to him more of what being the Christ actually means. And that's what he does in verses 31-33. to and He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, I say that this is the first of three times in which Jesus explains about His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. Notice what Mark records there in verse 31. And He began. Okay, so this is the first time that Jesus talks to them about His death that he is going to be a suffering messiah we see the necessity for suffering at the beginning of the verse and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things he doesn't say he might or there's a possibility that he might that he could suffer many things he must he he will he has to there's a compelling need for jesus to go to the cross because he recognized that he came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. In order for Him to do that, He had to die. He had to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, from God's perspective, from the perspective of Jesus Christ, the rule of the Messiah had to do with Him, really began with Him atoning for sins. That He would be willing to to lay down his life willingly for the sins of mankind. And that's what a good shepherd does for his sheep. He lays down his life for them. John chapter 10 verse 11 tells us that that is exactly what Jesus came to do. So his suffering is necessary. Secondly, we see the vehicles of his suffering or the means. It is that he is rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. These groups of people that that Jesus mentions make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, religious authority of that day. And then we receive confirmation from God that this death is acceptable. Did you ever wonder why Jesus rose from the dead? It was a stamp of approval from God that Jesus' payment was sufficient. That's why, in fact, the veil of the temple was torn in two. No longer did we need a priest to come and offer a sacrifice once a year into the Holy of Holies. Now we have Jesus Christ. Now, the disciples certainly must have been confused about this resurrection because the only resurrection that they knew about was the resurrection in Daniel 12 which would be of all mankind at the end of the judgment. And so they're trying to figure out, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're saying that you're going to die and then be resurrected in that day? What are you talking about? How can you be resurrected three days later? And so we find in verse 32 that Peter rebukes Jesus. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. Again, Peter being the spokesperson, the one who's willing to step out and, and say what he's thinking, he takes Jesus inside, aside and says, Jesus, we just said that You're the Messiah, the political ruler, the one who would would free us from this oppression. Don't say that You're going to die now. That's not going to happen. Because from Peter's perspective, Jesus was simply wrong. He, he he was a little bit misguided. I mean, after all, messiahs don't get killed. They win. And how could this God-ordained, miracle-working messiah like Jesus die? This is what they're thinking. How could this possibly happen? And so Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. There's no way that a Messiah like he could lose. He has to win. But Jesus reinforces his teaching in verse 33 by explaining to them explaining to Peter as the spokesperson for the disciples that in fact he was wrong. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man." Notice at the beginning he says it says that He turns around and looks at His disciples. This implies that the rebuke was not just for Peter. He looks at all of His disciples and rebukes them. He rebukes Peter. Because they were thinking the same thing that Peter was. And here's the rebuke. He says, get behind Me. He's not saying, come behind Me and follow Me, like a disciple would. But rather, Peter, get out of My sight. Get away from me. Stop tempting me, is what Jesus is saying to him. He's challenging Peter and the disciples to accept both the scandal of suffering and to accept the implications of, of following him. That, that, yes, I am going to suffer and die, and guess what? You'll see this as we study throughout the rest of the book. You are going to happen. To, you could potentially die as well. You are going to be persecuted on account of me as well. So he says, get behind me. And then he follows that up with this uh, reference to Satan. He calls Peter Satan. And the idea here is we have to look at the rest of the verse in order to understand what he's saying there. He's saying, you are acting like Satan because, notice the end of the verse, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Part of God's eternal plan was for Jesus to suffer. And when Peter rejected that truth, he was acting as if he were Satan. He was acting under the authority of Satan. He was consciously or unconsciously speaking for Satan. This is what Satan would would say. No, Jesus, You are the Messiah. In fact, he did do this to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when he tempted Jesus? He says to, to Jesus, You know what? Skip all this suffering and, and pain and all this. Why don't you just bow down before me and I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world? Do you remember that? You see, Peter's doing the same sort of thing. You don't need that suffering, Jesus. Don't talk to me about death. You have what you what you need to, to be the king, to be the, the Messiah. I like what uh, John Piper has to say about this passage. He says, uh, this is what Jesus would be saying. Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. You side with Satan against God. Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell. See, the point is that if, if Jesus didn't die, our faith would be in vain. Satan wants me to bow down and worship Him and jump off temples for fame and turn stones into bread for self-preservation. The last thing He wants is for ransom to be paid for His captives. But Peter, that's what God wants. Because He loves you. My coming to die as your ransom is the love of God. At that time, Peter didn't understand he was speaking on behalf of Satan. But I imagine that he remembered what Jesus had said when he wrote the words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, he writes to believers, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Certainly, Peter must have been thinking back to this time when, when Satan had captivated his mind and caused him to say something against Christ. Now, we can't fault the disciples uh, too much because they were receiving revelation as they were uh, living there. And so, really, it came in stages, didn't it? They understood, yes, that that Jesus is the Messiah. We understand that. But Jesus helped helped them to see things clearly as they went on. It was a work of God both to give them the initial act of spiritual sight where they could see, just like trees, that Jesus was the Christ. But it was also the work of Christ to, to continue that act so that they can continue to see what Jesus is doing. And you know, that's the same way that Jesus works in our lives. At that point of salvation, He gives us sight, yes, and we're able to see Jesus for who He really is, that He is the Messiah. But we don't understand all the aspects of theology and scripture, do we, when we first come to Christ? It takes time. We're learning. And so we need that second, uh, or that continuing, ongoing work of Jesus to provide grace so that we can see clearly. So Jesus not only gives sight, but he gives clarity. And I'm not suggesting that we need a second work of grace, like is preached in many circles. That we need to rededicate our lives to God or or at some point in our Christian life, we move up to this higher level of spiritual living. I'm not suggesting that because I don't believe the the Scriptures teach that. What I am suggesting is that when we come to Christ, we don't know everything about Christ and about God and about His Word. We know enough to be saved, but we need that continual work of Christ to sanctify us. As 2 Corinthians says that, that He removes the veil from our faith so that we can behold the glory of the Lord through the Scriptures while we're being transformed from one level of glory to the other. So what can we learn from this passage today? We should learn that Jesus' earthly mission as Messiah could not be understood apart from... The cross. The disciples didn't understand the cross. They didn't understand what that was all about. And so his work as the Messiah, his mission, cannot be understood apart from the cross. And the disciples had to understand that. Do you understand why they needed to know this? They needed to know this not only because they would possibly be persecuted, but they needed to pass this word on, didn't they? They need to take this Word and and take it not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all nations. And as a result, we have much of their written Word uh, in front of us today. And we know much about Jesus Christ as a result of their testimony. We'll see their cost of discipleship next week and throughout the, the remainder of our time. But Jesus' earthly mission as Messiah cannot be understood apart from the cross. Secondly, when Jesus dies for the sins of the world, He is simultaneously the conquering King, the conquering Messiah, and also the suffering servant. See, when we think of death, we think of loss. You you lost. You, you, You missed it. You didn't win. But see, in God's plan... When Jesus died, He won. He was the conquering King while He was the suffering servant. Thirdly, clear spiritual sight doesn't happen overnight. God does give us sight to see who Christ is, but like the disciples, we are slow to understand. And it would take them long, a long time to fully understand. Remember, they didn't even understand what the resurrection was about until after it occurred. And then they went back and thought, Oh, I remember now what Jesus had been saying about Him being raised and about Him dying. Now it makes sense. You see, the same thing happens for us. Spiritual clarity does not happen overnight. It takes time. It takes work. And then lastly, when we reject God's revelation like Peter did, we become a conduit for Satan. Now we're saying things on behalf of Satan whether we know it or not. We become Satan's mouthpiece. And so the point for us is that we ought to accept God's revelation and speak on behalf of God. We're, We're supposed to interpret the things that happen in our world and in God's Word and then be able to recite them to other people. We are interpreters on behalf of God. We are representatives or ambassadors on behalf of God. But when we reject God's revelation and we we base our understanding on the revelation that comes from a humanistic philosophy, then we become a conduit for Satan's ministry, for his work to destroy and to bring as many people to an eternal punishment in hell with him as possible. So let's accept God's revelation as truth and be learning just like the disciples were, to gain further spiritual sight. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we uh, don't know all Your ways. And just as the heavens are high above the earth, so Your ways are not our ways. And we are thankful that that we uh, do not have the ability to make... uh, to determine the course of our lives many times because if we did, we, we would uh, be in a lot of trouble. Thankful that You have drawn us out of this world. That those of us who are saved have received spiritual sight and that, that that You constantly illumine our minds and help us to see even more. And we look forward to the day when our faith will be sight when no longer will we believe in what we cannot see, but we will trust in what we can see. But until that time, we want to accept the revelation that You give to us. And So we pray that You give us the grace to do so. We thank You for Your grace and salvation that, that allowed Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, to put on flesh, come into this world, be ridiculed and and suffer and die for us so that we could have life. The just died for the unjust so that we could be counted as just. And for that, we are grateful. And we want to give ourselves to You by learning from Your Word, exalting it, and submitting ourselves to it. May You help us in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.